Social Strategy Podcast, episode 47. Welcome to the Social Strategy Podcast, where it's all about making the most of your business with smart tips on what's working now in social media, online business, and good old-fashioned networking. And now your host, who's also known as Ross PR on Twitter, Vernon Ross. Hey everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This is an exceptional week on the podcast. Uh, really special guest, just an amazing titan of industry, and I'm so happy to have him on the podcast. I'm going to get right into it, but right before we do, I wanted to take a minute to thank our sponsor, lynda.com. Over 3,000 courses that you guys can take online from anywhere, works on any mobile device, lynda.com forward slash Ross for a 10-day free trial. Try it out. Kick the tires. Drive it around. See if you like it. If you like it, stay on for a while and learn some stuff. It's really good. I'll talk to you more about it at the end of the show. I'm going to go ahead and get right into it, guys, and I look forward to seeing you on the back end. Hey, everyone. This is Vernon Ross, and welcome to the Social Strategy Podcast, bringing you the best in online business, social media, good old-fashioned networking. And guys, today... I've got an extremely good treat. This is a rare occasion where you literally have one of the people that's defined an industry. Now, I know I've had Gary Vaynerchuk on, and of course, he's the voice of social media. Everyone loves Gary. But when you have someone that's taken a company from $50 billion or $50 million to over $5 billion in 15 years, that's a pretty big deal. I've got the former CEO of Charles Schwab. He's currently the chairman of Hightower Advisors, $35 billion wealth management company. He's leadership at CorpU. He's on Intel's board or on their corporate board. Just an amazing breadth of knowledge. He also is a fellow and teaches at the Warden Business School. It's an honor to have David Potruck on the show. Dave, welcome to the show. Vernon, I'm delighted to be here, and I know my mother will enjoy listening to your wonderful introduction. <laughs> Thank you. I'm quite honored. It's a lot to live up to. I'm not sure I can, but I'll do my best. It was hard getting it out. I'm like, my God, <laughs> <laughs> I should not be talking to you right now. <laughs> uh, it's my pleasure. Life is about what you learn and how you share that learnings with others. I've been a professor at Wharton for eight years and my teaching there has been immensely gratifying. My public speaking with companies, immensely gratifying experiences. And so participating with you today to share what I've learned and hopefully benefit some people is an honor for me, a true honor. Well, thank you. You know, one of the things I didn't mention that I was staring at was the fact that you've got a best-selling book, Stacking the Deck. You also have another New York Times bestseller. It was Clicks and Mortar. That was a book that you published back in the late 90s that addressed the whole online thing when online was really just emerging and how you helped Charles Schwab move into that area of what people call the, I guess, the hands-off investing. You helped define that for an entire industry, which in itself is just amazing. One of the things I wanted to ask, just starting off, something that you talk about in the book, in Stacking the Deck, anticipating fear and impact. It's in like the first section, and it just happened to be when I was thumbing through the book when I first got it, that was the section that I landed on. And I think that with my audience and small businesses, fear and the impact of it is what holds the business back and prevents a lot of entrepreneurs from even being able to grow their business or being even able to start. How would you address that 
one from an organizational corporate standpoint, and then kind of translate that into how a small business or mid-sized business would be able to deal with that? Sure. So there's two things to think about here. One is the fear and resistance of the other people in your organization. And the second is your own fear of making a mistake and taking the wrong turn and taking risk. All change, all progress involves some degree of risk. You know, the old saying, you can't steal second base with your foot still on first. (laughs) So let's start with the organization first. And in my experience, I was constantly surprised over and over and over by the level of resistance people had to change. People are afraid of change, and it's easy for you as the proponent for the change to look at the idea that you have, the direction you want to go, and say, oh my God, this is fabulous. This is going to change our company. It's going to bring us into the 21st century. This is going where no one else has gone. It's a great innovation. Customer service will be better. Positioning, marketing, growth, such fabulous opportunities. Everyone's going to love this. And you present it. And they hate it. (laughs) Exactly. And you're thinking, I don't understand. Why don't they see it the way I see it? And the reality is that your team, your staff, your company is looking at it from a very different vantage point than you're looking at it. They're looking at it, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to my job every day? How about the fact that you're going to change things? I've invested 10 years in knowing exactly how this works. And then when you change it, my knowledge goes out the window and I'm like a brand new guy who just started here yesterday. My investment in skills and experience doing business the old way is lost. Or you're going to ask me to do something new and different. And yes, you're going to pay me more if I can do that new different thing. But I'm afraid of, I don't know that I can succeed. And what happens if I can't? Will I get fired? What's my future look like? So I think we start by having to realize we have to look at the change through the lens of the employees. And we have to understand that we have to talk about, promote, discuss, answer questions on the change Over and over and over, I see people make the mistake. They say to me, well, I explained it to everybody. I sent out an email. (laughs) I explained the whole thing. First of all, sending out an email. We're (laughs) dealing with emotional reactions. We don't overcome emotion with logic. We overcome emotion with emotion. We overcome emotion with compassion, with leadership. We have to stand in front of people and explain it. People don't follow ideas. They follow other people that they believe in, that they trust. And so every day as a leader, you're earning trust. And so it's a process. It doesn't happen immediately. It's a process. Half the time, you explain the change, and you're standing in front of everyone, and you explain the change, and you're fabulous, and you do a wonderful job. They have tuned out after the first 15 seconds as they're running through their mind. What does this mean to me? How is this going to work? How am I going to explain it to my spouse? Is this me? I'm going to have to work harder. Am I going to be any good at this? Blah, 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 blah. Okay? They haven't even heard all the other things that you think you've said and you think you've told them they haven't heard. So you got to tell them again and again and again. And you got to place it in the context of the person who's listening, the audience you're talking to. And you have to say, 
you have to be prepared to make the statement and go over it over and over until you're sick of it, knowing that for many of them, they're hearing it for the first time. Right. And I explain all this. I go through great detail in this in my book because these are exactly the things I learned by doing it wrong. I never read any of this stuff. There was no book out there that explained all this. They talked about the importance of describing a compelling vision of the future and describing the need to make the change, but they never completely explained why it's so darn hard and why sending out an email is not good enough and why you have to do it over and over and over and over. And so I try to explain that because I've been in the trenches and I've made all these mistakes and not just once, I've made them several times. (laughs) And so I have all the scar tissue from this. The second part, to answer your question, I hope I'm not going on too long. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. second part is your own fear. And of course, nobody wants to be the guy that screwed things up, that made a good situation bad, as opposed to better, made it bad. So one of the many things I talk about in my book is bringing new ideas to the marketplace and looking for opportunities to fail small. I call that noble failure. When we fail small, when we fail fast, when we've done all the right things in terms of planning and testing and preparation, and we still fail, I call that noble failure. And there's several rules in my book that I talk about for noble failure, because you have to be prepared sometimes to fail, but you don't want to sink the whole company. You don't want to sink the reputation. You don't want to sink so much money that the company doesn't recover. So we talk about how we do these things in such a way that we pilot test them. We do them small so that if they're not going to work, we fail on a small level. And there's a whole bunch of different strategies for trying to do things that way. You can't always do that. Sometimes you have to take a deep breath and take a leap into the future and just hope the heck it works. Sometimes you have no choice. I would say an example of that was, let's say, Borders Books Mm -hmm. had to do something bold and different. Uh, Blockbuster Video had to do something bold and different. Instead, they tried to hold on to their old business model, and today they don't exist. Thriving franchises that we all remember. There's no one listening to this podcast doesn't remember Blockbuster Video. They're <laughs> exactly. Gone. Yeah. They're right. gone. Yeah. Now we have Redbox and Netflix. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting. Something that you said, and it's in the book that talks about piloting. Right. The newer business people or the newer small startup guys all talk about your minimal viable product and right. getting it to market quick, testing it, right. seeing if it'll work putting up a landing page with an email and see if you can get people to come to it and buy your product. That way you're not going through this entire development cycle before you find out that nobody wants what it is that you're selling. I used to call that sneakerware, sneakerware, (laughs) where someone did something on a website or through software and assumed that everything behind that was automated and it was actually people running around fulfilling the orders and doing everything. There wasn't a system. Right. Because the first test is, is anyone going to show up and do this? Is the offer compelling? Why build the whole delivery for the couple of hundred customers you're testing on? You can do it manually and then you can modify it and test it that way rather than spend the time and the energy to build something completely that actually doesn't end up being right. (laughs) Exactly. So now with you being a leadership trainer, 
and being on the board and a leader at Corp U. I mean, it's a corporate training organization, company. You train leaders. How can businesses, usually a one or two person shop, how do you define the leadership dynamic between two people, especially if you have people that you bring in like contractors or artists to do whatever design work you have to have done and possibly managing writers for content and the things that small businesses deal with when they're trying to lead a very transient organization that where you have people coming in, how do you quickly establish leadership? Well, there's two pieces to that answer. One is how do you lead those that rightfully have a seat at the table to participate in the decisions whose buy-in you need and who effectively have a choice about whether they're going to be supportive or they're going to drag their heels? How do you do that? Right. And the way that's done is by giving people an opportunity to really participate. And the interesting thing, Bern, about all this stuff is how bad I was at every one of the things I'm talking about when I was younger. And, you know, I always thought I was the smartest guy in the room and I was always in a big rush and I didn't think I needed to get anyone's input. I had the idea. I know how to solve this. I know how to do it. Just listen to me and do what I say. And I failed to understand that it didn't matter whether in reality I had all the answers because no one wants to follow someone who behaves that way. No one wants to follow someone who doesn't give them a chance to add value, to share a perspective. And by God, maybe these people have something to share with you that you might learn from. So showing respect, listening, really listening, participatively listening to what others have to say will grant immense buy-in. Most people want to be heard. They don't have to be listened to, but they want to be heard. And so you're talking about a business strategy and rather than say, okay, any questions? Or are we ready to go forward? You might say something more along the lines of, look, this is one way of getting this done. I'm sure you might have some ideas of a different approach or a different solution to the problem. And I think we should discuss any other ideas that might be on the table. And if we can't do that today, if you want some time to think about this, let's get back together tomorrow. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the good and the bad of this idea. Let's talk about other ideas. Let's talk about the resistance we might see from other employees and think about how we might have to overcome that resistance as we try to implement this new way of doing business. Oh, wow. That's powerful because when you think about it from a small business perspective, a lot of the times the other person that you have to get buy-in from may be a spouse. Yeah. If you want to take the leadership role, you've got to find a way to include them, even if they don't necessarily want to be. That's brilliant. Well, what you have to do is you have to slow down your clock, that internal clock. Most small business people always feel the hot breath of competition and fear on their shoulder because they're not well capitalized. They're sort of living day to day on their success or failure. They know how much pressure is on them to perform, run the business, deliver the results. And that causes people to be impatient. It causes people to want to get everything done fast. Fast, it's a little bit like the tortoise and the hare, trying to jam ideas down people's throats, get the discussion to be over, and let's move forward too quickly doesn't work. 
People need time to wrap their head around it. So because you've been thinking about this, and this happens all the time, you've been thinking about this for two months. You finally <laughs> present it, and you expect everyone else to wrap their head around it in 10 minutes. Oh, yeah, I've been there. Exactly. It's like, well, okay, this is a big new idea. And I'm imagining you're probably having a million things going through your brain right now. And I don't even want to ask you what those are right now because I'd like to give you a chance to really reflect. I want you to make a list. Think about pluses and minuses, risks and opportunities. What are the other ideas you may have? Let's get together tomorrow. Take some time. Think about this overnight. Let's get together tomorrow. I want to hear those thoughts. What does that say versus, okay, any questions, any ideas? You're in the moment. No one's been even given time to think about it. It means I don't really want to hear what you have to say. I just want to go forward. As opposed to you guys think about this tonight. Let's get together tomorrow and give it some more discussion. That means I really want to hear what you have to say. I'm giving you time to think it over. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing advice. I think not a lot of us spend enough time actually listening and worrying about the answers when you're working on a team or you're trying to get a project done. You have the tendency to not, like you just said, you've been thinking about it for two weeks or however long you've had the task of thinking about this thing that you want to implement and you present it to everyone else and you expect them to just get it. Yeah. So think about the difference of being at a table. Someone presents you an idea and you suggest some concerns, some reservations. Their lips are ready to give you the reason why you're wrong before you're even done. Their lips are starting to move. (laughs) Okay. As opposed to someone saying to you, Tell me more about why you think that way. Think about the power of that difference. Tell me more about why you think that way. By saying it, I'm honoring what you just told me. And I might learn a little more. I might learn a little more. How much more convincing will it be if after you tell me all that, I say, well, you know, you're bringing up something very important. And I want to give that some more thought. I have some concerns about what you've just told me. But the truth of the matter is that I'd like to reflect. I'd like to spend a little time tonight thinking about that. I'm not sure if I agree with you or disagree, but I think what you've said is worthy of some real thought. As opposed to, well, thank you for that suggestion, but I don't agree. I think that's not quite right. I have a bigger vantage point. I'm sitting at the top of this company, and from my perspective, I think this is the right answer. What's going to give you the greater buy-in? Yeah, the first answer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, showing that they care enough about your opinion to actually consider it, that you're important. Right. And so if we remember every day, what we're trying to do is we're trying to inspire followership. People talk about motivation and inspiration as if they're the same thing. They're not even close. Motivation is exchanging behaviors for rewards. If you do this, I will give you money, power, title, prestige, whatever it is. It's motivation. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We all remember that from college psychology. Oh, yeah. We cave in a certain way and we get a certain reward. That's motivation. Inspiration is about wanting to be a part of something great. It's about wanting to follow someone you believe in because it's important. It's important to do. It's something that has purpose and belief. It's not about the rewards. It's about the purpose and the fact that you believe in the person. So, I just think that if you think about it in that context, it makes all the difference in the world. Exactly. I was listening to some video and heard a story that you told about EOS Airline. 
and how they basically they flew you across the country to help them turn the company around. They were losing money, just hemorrhaging money, huge international airline. You didn't move to New York from California to go run the company. And you tell the story about you're going to come in every morning, 8.30 a.m., and start going through the things, the KPIs, key performance indicators that they needed to look at to see whether or not they were turning the company around. How were you able to get the people in that company to trust your advice so quick? Vern, you've really done your homework on me. That story, I thought I buried that story. (laughs) (laughs) That was not in my book. I don't know where you found that, but we'll talk about that later. Sure. So I became the interim CEO for a startup airline in 2006, and we were hemorrhaging cash. And so it was located in New York. I couldn't move to New York, but I was going back and forth, and I was spending basically three days a week, two out of every three weeks in New York. And my belief was we had a huge marketing and sales problem, among other things, And that in business, you can't have a good week if you don't start off with a good day. And you can't have a good month if you don't start off with a good week. It's very hard. You're overcoming a trough. So I wanted people focused as my senior team on the fact that we had to be focused on our outcomes every single day. In addition to all the process stuff we were doing, we were in survival mode. And every day mattered. And we had a certain amount of cash. And we were burning cash. And we had a certain amount of time with which to deliver enough results that our investors would give us a new round of capital because there was no way we were going to break even and start making money fast enough to survive that way. So the only way to survive was to build the case that we were worth another round of capital. So every morning I had a list of key performance indicators prepared that executive team looked at every day at 8.30 in the morning. We didn't even sit down. I made it a stand-up meeting. The idea was to get in and get out in less than half an hour and talk about what was going on and what we were going to do and what we had to do if any of our trends were in the wrong direction because I wanted to have a good day every day. And if something was not working, I wanted to jump on it. Of course, on that one week when I was not in New York, The question was put to me, well, when you're not here and you're doing business from California, well, we have this meeting at 8.30. And I said, of course, we'll have it at 8.30. And they said, well, that's 5.30 in the morning in California. I said, it doesn't matter. I'm committed. I don't want you guys having this meeting at 11.30 in the morning. It's too late. We need to start our day focused on our results every day. Where I am makes no difference. And so, honestly, I wasn't trying to make a statement. I just did what I thought was the right way to do things. It just was what it was. I had to get up, of course, at about 4.45 or 5 o'clock, look at the results and download my email performance data and look at it and be prepared for this 5.30 phone call. It wasn't fun. I didn't like getting up that early and starting my day. But what people told me later on when we turned the company around was that, This became the buzz of the company. These guys walked out and it made a big statement to them how committed I was, how serious I was, that I wasn't just there to, to, I don't know, to kill time. I was there to really get engaged and really turn this company around. And it became a point of credibility for me with all these employees. They knew quite well 
I didn't really know the airline industry. I wasn't an airline guy. I was a financial services guy. And I made it very clear to them, look, I don't know the airline business. I'm relying on your industry knowledge. But I know something about marketing and sales. And so I think we have a marketing and sales problem. I don't think we have a running the airline problem. We have a marketing and sales problem. That's something I know a little something about. So hopefully I can add value and we can get this company back on its feet. Right. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Why do you think so many leaders today whether it's in a small business or whether it's in a bigger business, have the problem of inspiring their employees, like you obviously inspired that company, with what they do on a daily basis? I think it's because people get promoted for their competence. They get promoted because they're really good at marketing. They're really good at finance. They're really good at technology. And so the senior people in companies get promoted because of their technical skill, not because of their ability necessarily to connect with employees. And as you get more senior and the job becomes more about leading others to do things, they get confused that those jobs are about skill as opposed to connection. It's all about our ability to connect. We have to be competent, of course, but competence gets you the job But it's not enough to do the job. We have to be able to connect. We have to be able to be vulnerable. We have to be real. We have to be authentic. We can't stand up in front of a room full of people, thousands of people sometimes, hundreds of people, read a speech and walk off the stage. We've all seen people do that. Oh, yeah. And thinking that's leadership. And they have this fabulously prepared text as opposed to someone who gets up there and speaks from the heart, tells how they feel. They might have a page of notes that they're using to guide them through the discussion. They might have slides on a PowerPoint or not, but they're in the moment. They're authentic. You know how they feel. Their words may not be perfect. It's okay because they're being who they are. The importance in those situations when you're leading a group And then you stop and say, okay, let's do some Q&A here. I'm sure some of you have questions. What can I answer for you about whatever? In my mind, if you're lucky, you get a really tough question. And someone takes the risk. One time I was addressing 3,000 Schwab middle managers. It was a huge auditorium. I couldn't see the audience. There were lights in my eyes. There were microphones around the room. And one of the employees says, Dave... You talk all the time about efficiency and economy and a culture of containment and cost control. And I saw in the proxy that we all received, since we're all shareholders, your salary and your bonus for last year, and you were paid millions of dollars. How do you square your compensation with that culture that you just described? Oh, wow. That was a brave question. That was a brave question, right? So I had my choice how to answer that. I had many choices how to answer that question. I could have become defensive. I could have made a joke out of it. I could have done a lot of things. Here's what I did. I said to him, well, let's be clear that that's a really courageous question you just asked. (laughs) Right. And I'll bet since you asked it of me that it's probably on the minds of a lot of people in this room. So let me take that question very seriously and let me tell you, exactly how all this comes together. And I explained how the board hires compensation consultants. Every job in the company is graded 
and is benchmarked against industry standard compensation. So we know we're not paying the highest, we're not paying the lowest, we're paying kind of in the middle. And my compensation is consistent for people running public companies of my size. But then I said, I think that what the question you just asked is exactly the kind of questions I want to be asked when I'm in front of an audience full of my colleagues and peers. I want you all challenging me. I want you asking those tough questions. And I want to have a culture of open discussion. So let's give that employee a standing ovation for the courage to ask that question. And I made a huge deposit to the culture bank in that moment. Yeah, that's amazing because most people would expect to get fired or most people in the audience would expect that someone like that would get fired or reprimanded for being bold enough to ask a question like that. And that's that's an amazing way to handle it and, of course, inspire leadership because how many leaders would answer a question like that? Yeah, exactly. Not one ounce of defensiveness. Why should I be defensive? I knew I was paid fairly. There's nothing to be defensive about. Nothing. In fact, that's the kind of company I wanted, where employees felt empowered to challenge conventional wisdom, challenge what the company's doing. All of the best ideas, all of the best ideas on what the company can be doing better to satisfy customers are in the heads of the people in the front line of the company who serve customers every day and see what goes wrong. Yeah. Those are the people who know. They know what could be done differently and better. They're tap that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There was a story about the wine company Barefoot Wines, and the two people that own it, I can't recall their name. It was in Success Magazine. Darren Hardy was interviewing them, and they talked about how the packaging wasn't the way it is now, and the size of the bottle wasn't the way it is now, and how the ideas that they got to change the labeling and the way that the boxes looked in the warehouse and the entire process behind how they deliver that wine to the store came from the people that worked in the warehouse and not their marketing department because it made the wines quicker to get and made them easier to ship if they were color-coded and in these different types of boxes that the warehouse guys preferred to get. And they got it because they were willing to talk to the other people exactly. outside of their marketing people that worked, exactly. you know, that actually did the work. Exactly. I always encourage my senior leaders to get out and talk to the front lines and talk to them and listen. Listen, ask them questions. Talk to your customers and ask them, what are we not doing you wish we were doing? Don't say, how satisfied are you? That's easy. That's too easy. Too many customers will say, oh, I'm very satisfied or I wouldn't be here. Okay, fine. That's not good enough. What are we not doing for you that would delight you? What do you wish we could do? Don't worry about the cost. Don't worry about the practicality of it. If you had a magic wand, what would we do for you that we don't do today? It's not the customer's problem to solve the problem. That's your problem. But the customers know what their unmet needs are. Nobody walked around saying, gee, I wish I could carry a thousand songs in my pocket. I have this Walkman and two tapes, but I wish I could carry a thousand songs. Nobody said that, but Steve <laughs> Jobs invented the iPod and changed the whole music industry. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I remember the Walkman. You know, Talking about problems, there was a quote that I wrote down that I heard. You say that you love problems because they give us a competitive advantage over our competition. How is that? Well, because when we have a problem, we have to come up with a solution. 
And too many companies don't face their problems. They ignore their problems. I like it when I learn. I'm trying to be a learning machine in my entire life. I'm always trying to get better personally. I'm trying to get my company better and I'm trying to get myself better. I know I'm not good enough. I know there's more to learn. I know I've got bad habits. I know I fail at certain things. So I'm trying to get myself better and I'm trying to get my company better. And when we face problems, problems are oftentimes the manifestation of things that are not working that we're not paying attention to. And so that gives me an opportunity to focus our energy and excitement about doing something new and different. Yeah, that is a good way to look at it. To bring it all together and kind of wrap it up, when you talk about learning and constantly improving yourself, there is a statistics that's going around, and I haven't been able to find the source of it, but I've heard several prominent business leaders say it, that most CEOs read about 60 books a year, most of them. I'm not sure how true that is, but I know that most leaders in big companies and most leaders in general read a lot. And they spend a lot of time on self-development. What would be your recommendations for entrepreneurs as far as a self-development regimen, something that you do to help get them to that next level of success? Well, I think that a couple of things. Number one, I think the only way to do anything and do it well is to write it down and make a commitment to do it. So if you just put in your head, gee, I'm going to try to read a lot of books, that's going nowhere. If you said, okay, I haven't read a book in six months, maybe two years, I'm going to try to read one book a month. So I'm going to make a list of my new goals. Number one, I'm going to try to read a book a month. So I'm going to track that as one of my goals for the next year. I'm going to try to read a book a month. The other thing that I think is really important that is not focused on enough is your fitness. I think people don't pay attention to their endurance, their physical endurance to work long hours, and they think, gee, I'm working really hard. I don't have time to work out. And like everything else, working out is an investment. And that investment pays dividends. Your fitness, your energy, your ability to focus and work long hours is a function of your being fit. If you're not fit, then you get tired. If you don't eat properly, if you don't get sleep, if you don't exercise at least a few times a week, all of that stuff matters. And it's hard. It's all about discipline. I used to say, look, I want you guys, I used to tell this to my kids, getting up early is the first victory of the day. Every day starts with a victory that you got up earlier than everybody else. All of your, quote, competitors are still sleeping. You're starting your day. So you have the time to do stuff that they're not doing because they're still in bed. So the first victory of the day, that's your first victory of the day. Get up early and get going. And now to do that, if you need whatever number of hours of sleep you need, that means you got to discipline yourself at night to go to sleep. So getting that sleep you need, eating properly, exercising, you got to take care of yourself. And all of this, in my mind, needs to be written down. You have to have written goals and you got to hold yourself accountable. Wow. That is awesome advice. You know, it's no mistake that I hear that type of advice from leaders like yourself. I heard Jim Rohn give that very same advice, again, referring to Success Magazine in one of his interviews with Darren Hardy, where he talked about fitness. And Zig Ziglar talked about getting exercise and the proper amount of exercise to keep yourself sharp. And every like hugely successful entrepreneur talks about 
keeping that bank of health full so that you can continue to do all the things that you need to do to operate at those optimum levels for longer periods of time. That is an amazing that most people in your position actually take the time to get out and exercise and eat right. Well, I used to do it to start my day. I'd get up at five o'clock in the morning. And of course, for a long time, I lived in the suburbs. I would drive into the city ahead of the traffic. So I made it in at almost half the time it normally would take. And I'd get into the city by about a quarter to six. And then I'd work out and I'd be done by 7.15 and on my way to the office, energized and fit and ready to go. My brain is working. My system is operating. (laughs) The engine, the machine is going. And I basically taken it a little bit, not too much out of my sleep because I had to go to bed earlier so I got enough sleep, but I basically operated on a different schedule than most of the world. And in my mind, that was my first victory of the day, every day. David, that is an awesome note to end it on. And I'm going to make sure to recommend that everyone go out, get stacking the deck. It's how to lead breakthrough change against any odds. It's a great book. It's not just a corporate book. It's really interesting, and there's a lot of things in here that you can apply to any size business that's going to help you succeed at a level that you're probably not at right now. This is a good book to up-level. Take notes in it, mark it up, put your sticky pad things in there. I've got some in this one. It's a really good book, and I had enjoyed reading it. I got it just about a week and a half ago and read it over the weekend and took a couple pages of notes and got on Google and started doing some research and thinking about ways that I can change processes in my business and actually having processes that I follow in my business. Like a lot of entrepreneurs that are solopreneurs, you don't think about the actual processes and nailing things down. And it's wonderfully written in this book. And it's something I'm definitely recommending to everyone in the audience that they go out and they get it. Thank you, Vern. I appreciate that endorsement. You'll remember that at the end of every chapter, there's a checklist of things to do. Yes. So I don't leave it to you. You know, I have all this explanation of what I mean and who did it and stories that kind of explain how it works and what happens if you don't. I give that in the chapter. But then at the end of every chapter, there is the operator manual of what it is you have to do. I wanted my book to be something that people could put on a copier or rip the pages out and say, chapter by chapter, here's my to-do list of what I have to do. Yeah, that was a favorite part of in the book, that there's actionable steps that you can take. There's no excuse not to get the stuff done that's in the book unless you just refuse to do it. And if you do, you're refusing to change. <laughs> so that kind of defeats the purpose, right? Yep. Awesome. Well, David, I do appreciate you coming on the podcast, and I look forward to possibly talking to you in the future. Be my pleasure. Vern, thanks so much for our time today. I've enjoyed it. You know, before you go, tell people where can they find you online? Well, thank you, David potruck.com d-a-v-i-d-p-o-t-t-r-u-c-k.com is my website and my twitter handle is at david potruck all right awesome i'll have all that information in the show notes so that people can easily find you and connect to you online and i look forward to talking to you in the future thanks i'd love to do this anytime take care okay everything is awesome that was an amazing interview. One of the things that, that David said right from the start, I just knew it was going to go well. He goes, you know, life is about 
what you learn and how you share that learning with others. So I'm honored to be here. That is amazing. That is an amazing attitude to take as a leader of a $35 billion company talking to a podcaster. I had to take that one in for a second because what that says is that says that's the type of leader he is in his organization. And you don't always get that. So when I first found out about this interview, you have to wonder how you're going to translate that type of experience, that breadth of knowledge, that titan of industries knowledge into something that everyone can use. But after I got the book and started reading through it, and the book is Stacking the Deck, How to Lead Breakthrough Change Against Any Odds. When you start talking as an entrepreneur and thinking as an entrepreneur, you have to wonder, you know, how do you implement change, whether it's a small change in your business, whether it's a change in your life, whether it's just introducing a new idea to a spouse. One of the tips that he gives in the book is reflecting on what others say and what he talked about in the podcast. You present an idea. You have to slow down as an entrepreneur. Slow your clock down a little bit. Allow other people to express their ideas. You don't have to agree with them, but give them the time to understand what it is that you've said. Because if it's a big change, they haven't heard a word that you said after you've talked about the initial idea. Give them time. Come back. Talk about it later. Give them a day's like, hey, you know, I just dropped a lot on you. I want you to sit down, consider it, think about it a little bit. And then let's come back tomorrow and really actually talk about it because I want to hear what you have to say because I value your opinion and the contribution that you're going to make to whatever it is that you're doing. That's the type of advice that's in this book. You should go out. You should get it. It should be on your bookshelf. This is one of those must-have business books I will recommend to anyone at any level in business, especially to my friends in corporate. You need to read this book and start implementing some of the things that are in here. There is a void in, of leadership in the corporate world right now, a serious, serious void. One of the things you can do to re start repairing it, read this book and implement some of the things in here to start leading your organizations through some actual breakthrough change. It's his answer to the guy that challenged his salary in that one meeting. That was brave, but, you know, it says a lot when the guy takes time to explain exactly what it is and then encourages those type of questions. Because if one person is thinking, other people are thinking it. If one person that you're involved with in your business is thinking something, that means that anyone else may be thinking it. And it could be your clients, depending on what it is that you're doing. And reflection is good. And being able to take criticism is good. And being able to step up when you're challenged is an awesome trait. And I, you know, I it was just amazing to be able to talk to a titan of industry, you know, a person that's helped define the financial industry. And I'm not even a financial person, but I mean, it's it's an amazing story to listen to and to hear. And some of the advice in the book is just invaluable. Uh, we did also cover fear. I've talked about fear a lot and resistance, how to lead people towards it in your organization, in your company, or just how to lead yourself towards it. Sneakerware, that one was funny to me. If you've read The Lean Startup and you've talked about or heard people talk about a minimal viable product, I think I've mentioned it on the show before, where you, you do the bare minimum, what you need to do to get their thing out the door or get it up on the web or just test it to see if people are actually going to want it. 
It's not a new concept, but it is a very valid way before you really start investing a lot into something to see whether or not it's going to work, whether it's viable, and if it's something that you can scale. Awesome interview. Some some great concepts there. Let me know what you think in the comments. And by the way, I wanted to talk to you really quickly about lynda.com. You know, when you start talking about change and you start talking about what you learn, life is about what you learn and how you share that learning with others. Lynda.com is the perfect place for that. Three thousand plus courses on a very topic of subjects from web programming to social media to management anything that you want to learn you can learn it on linda whether it's audio editing i mean it's it's all out there video editing video is popular and if you're not using it in your business you are losing customers so you should be doing some type of video in your business whether you're on camera or whether you're just making explainer videos for things that are in your business one of the things that you can do with lynda.com is you can learn how to edit video in ScreenFlow for the Mac. You can use ScreenFlow to create explainer videos for problems that people may be having, whether it's with your software or an actual product or just explaining something that's difficult for people to learn. And you can learn how to do that on lynda.com. Of course, you can get ScreenFlow and struggle with it and learn how to use it over a period of time like a lot of us do. But why do that? Take a shortcut. Cut that time in half and take a quick course on Linda to figure out how to use ScreenFlow to do an explainer video. Explainer videos are popular right now. They get a lot of traffic and it drives traffic back to your website. So it's just something you should do. You can learn that on Linda.com. Go out to Linda.com forward slash Ross. That's R-O-S-S, my last name, 10-day free trial. Try it out. It's not going to take you 10 days to take a Linda course. You basically, you're getting a course for free. So go out there, lynda.com forward slash Ross. Try it out. Let me know what you think. I'm sure you guys are going to be happy with it. I know I am. I love having access to Linda and being able to brush up on some of the skills that I know I need to brush up on, like video editing. I had to look up something in ScreenFlow, and instead of struggling with it and Googling it and then jumping on YouTube, I just jumped on Linda. The answer was right there. It took me five minutes, and I was off to the races. All right, guys, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. Email me, Vernon at VernonRoss.com. You can tweet me at RossPR if you want to talk on Twitter, or you can find me on Facebook, Vern Ross, facebook.com slash Vern Ross. It's a new page. I'm going a different route on Facebook instead of the Ross PR page. So Vern Ross on Facebook, all the links are in the show notes. So you can connect to me there. Make sure you comment, make sure you tweet and forward it and follow me on Instagram at Ross PR on Instagram. Looking for you on Instagram, tag yourself and tell me where you're listening to the show at. That's kind of fun. A couple people have done it. All right, guys, I'm going to go ahead and get out of here, and I will see you in the next episode.